Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Meaning of Health podcast. This week, we have a really interesting chat with Hayley Passmore and Natalie Kippen from the Telethon Kids Institute, uh, and we talk in depth about their FASD research that they've been involved with. Um, we just wanted to give a mention to some people that didn't get mentioned in the podcast who were instrumental in that research happening in the first place. Uh, so Professor Carol Bauer, Clinical Associate Professor Raywin Much, Dr. Rochelle Watkins and Professor Rhonda Marriott. And I will now let you listen to the chat and hope you enjoy this episode. We are here with Hayley Passmore and Natalie Kippen from Telethon Kids Institute. So welcome, guys. Hello. Thanks for having us. And uh, we're joined by Courtney over in Sydney this week. Hello, I am here. <laughs> Excellent. So it's a bit of a bit of an, a, uh, a new method of recording for us. So we'll see how it goes. Um, so um, Hayley, would you like to introduce yourself, what you do, what your role is here at Telephone Kids? Yeah, sure. So my name is Hayley Passmore and I'm a PhD candidate and researcher here at Telephone Kids Institute um, and also enrolled through uh, the medical school in paediatrics at the University of Western Australia. Um, for the past four years, I've been working on a youth justice project, looking at the prevalence of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and working with justice professionals to upskill them in understanding how to work with those kids and manage them appropriately. Oh, yeah, very interesting. Uh, and we'll go into that project in a bit more detail yes. as the conversation goes. Uh, and Natalie, what about yourself? Yeah, hi. I am a speech pathologist and here at Telethon Kids. I'm undertaking research about the communication skills of young people in youth detention, so their speaking and listening skills, um, and also some of their writing skills, so literacy um, skills. Mm. And language and communication needs are really important to understand and respond to uh, because we need good communication skills every day to um, get along with others, to learn at school, um, and to succeed in the workplace. Mm. Ah, excellent. Um, just before we go any further, I almost neglected to give an acknowledgement to the traditional owners of the land on which we sit here at Telethon Kids Institute, um, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay my respects to the uh, the past, current and emerging elders. Thank uh, you. Yeah, excellent. Um, so just, uh, Courtney, do you have any, any questions? Yeah, so um, those areas are pretty fascinating study areas that you guys chose. Just very quickly, how did you guys even manage to get into that area? Yeah, so um, it's Hayley here. Uh, so my background is criminology and psychology. Um, I've worked in different prisons here in WA for over eight years now, and I'm very passionate about the justice system and particularly about improving the health and well-being of people who are involved in the justice system. Um, so I originally wanted to be a police officer. That was what... Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that was something I was really interested in. I watched a lot of crime shows, a lot of police shows when I was growing up. Um, and then when I started studying criminology and psychology, it just kind of opened my eyes to how many different things um, need to change within our justice system. And I think research is a fantastic avenue to, to make those changes on a large scale. So I feel really privileged to have started my PhD on this Telethon Kids project and to have been involved um, in a number of different initiatives that are happening in our youth justice system here in WA. Yeah, and yeah, that's, that's awesome. Natalie, what about you? Yeah, for me, um, I've been involved in the youth justice system for about eight years now. Um, 
previously, I worked as a youth custodial officer um, at Bankshire Hill Detention Centre and then completed uh, further studies in speech pathology. Um, there weren't any speech pathology jobs going in youth justice at the time, so um, I couldn't go and work in there clinically, but then this Telethon Kids Bankshire Hill uh, project came up, so I jumped at the chance to work um, on this project um, and have been doing so since 2015. I think, I think cool. even earlier. We've been here. We've been around for a while. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Yeah, you kind of get stuck in something when you're interested in it. That's right. Um, yeah, awesome. So, so both of you are focusing on fetal alcohol syndrome, right? Uh, yes. Kind of? <laughs> uh, yes, we both are. Um, it's actually called, in Australia, we call it fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So we no longer use the term fetal alcohol syndrome um, according. Ah, very good to know. Yeah, so we had some new Australian guidelines to diagnosing FASD um, published in 2016, um, and we can talk more about what that means. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, so do you want to um, give a brief definition to exactly what it is? Because obviously, I have no idea. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, you're not alone. There's a lot of people that um, don't know what fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is. So, it's a very good question. Um, so fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is a severe lifelong neurodevelopmental disorder. So severe means that you're having a lot of trouble with everyday activities. So you're functioning in the lowest 2% of your peers um, in many aspects of your life. So um, remembering information, staying focused, learning to read and write, communicate with others, um, to learn from mistakes um, and even succeed at school. Um, we say that it's lifelong because FASD is a condition that affects you through um, childhood into adolescence and also into adulthood. Um, neurodevelopmental disorder means that the effects of prenatal alcohol um, exposure are seen throughout the life in the way the brain, um, the brain grows and functions. So uh, FASD is not something you can grow out of. Um, we can put things in place to help support people that are living with FASD. Uh, but it is lifelong and in that regard it's similar to other developmental disorders like autism spectrum disorder, uh, developmental language disorder um, and intellectual disability. The only way that someone can have FASD is if they were exposed to alcohol when they're developing in the womb. Um, so supporting our communities and families to not drink alcohol while planning pregnancies and during pregnancies is really important for preventing FASD. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, so... So, <laughs> you, was, go, you go, Craig, was, you go, Craig. I was just going <laughs> to jump in there. Um, so the word spectrum is in the title, and I know that that word appears in other uh, developmental disorder titles as well. So do you guys want to give me a bit of background on um, what that means? What is, what is a spectrum disorder exactly? Yeah, sure. So um, particularly for FASD, when the diagnosis um, assessment ha happens, um, the clinical team, and I'm sure Nat being a clinician will talk about this in more detail, but the clinical team will look at 10 different areas of neurodevelopment. And so we can have two different young people with FASD, with FASD diagnosis, and one might be impaired in four or five out of those 10 areas, and then another can be impaired in three or four, they're entirely different. So it means that the needs of those two young people will look will look quite different. Um, some people might struggle in areas like 
memory and learning, attention and sensory processing, um, and executive function. Another young person could struggle with language and communication, um, motor skills, cognition, adaptive function, um, affect regulation. So there really is quite a diverse profile that these young people can have, um, and that is captured by having spectrum within the FASD diagnostic mm-hmm. title. Okay. Yeah. So, so the the disorder can manifest in different ways for different people. Yes, and definitely. That impacts on what sort of help they need. Yeah, and it's it's also really important to remember that FASD um, can occur with other disorders as well. So many young people with FASD also have other comorbidities. Um, we see young people not all the time, but sometimes will have intellectual disability as well. Um, they might have ADHD, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder. Um, they might have autism as well as FASD and language disorder as well. So young people can have a range of things happening for them um, and FASD might just be one of many complexities that are happening in their life. Okay, so if it's such a wide spectrum, um, how exactly can you diagnose it? Because it looks like there's so many different things that you have to consider. Yeah, um, so we do have guidelines in Australia Um, And they're called the Australian Guide to the Diagnosis of FASD. Um, And for anyone listening along who is interested in that, the guidelines can be found at fasdhub.org.au. So in Australia, our guide recommends that there is a team of health professionals that work together. um, And that typically includes a medical practitioner, such as a paediatrician, a speech pathologist, occupational therapist and psychologist. So... Um, generally a neuropsychologist or an educational psychologist. And it's really important that this team work together and consider all of the background information about a person, any previous diagnoses that a person may have. Um, And then we really uh, comprehensively look at 10 uh, ways that a person functions in their daily life. So we look um, in depth at motor skills, language and communication, attention, memory, cognition, executive functioning, so how a person thinks and solves problems, um, their mental health, how they're doing at school, um, their social skills, and also the size of their brain. So a diagnosis of FASD would be considered when there has been prenatal alcohol exposure and when at least three of those areas that I mentioned um, are deemed impaired. And by that we mean that the person is performing in the bottom 2% of their peers. Um, So it's not a diagnosis that is easily given. Um, The team does really consider uh, the person as a whole. And as Hayley said, there are often um, comorbidities um, and FASD may be one diagnosis that a young person has. Um, And for many families, a diagnosis provides lots of answers. Um, It gives them a helpful understanding of exactly what's been going on for their loved one who has FASD. We do often hear stories of families um, who have been on a long journey seeking reasons why their child is having um, troubles with behaviour and decision-making. And when they receive that diagnosis of FASD, things start to make a bit more sense for them and it gives them a link between uh, the behaviour that they're seeing um, and the underlying brain functioning difficulties. Yeah, I'm just... Okay, so... <laughs> sorry for interrupting each other again. Just quickly, um, I'm interested whether when, when you do sit down with the families and you are able to say, look, this is what's going on and this has happened, 
Uh, is that can that be a bit confronting for maybe the mother because essentially it's something that she might may have contributed to. Uh, and, and that's exactly what I was going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and how, how do you guys handle that? I'm sure you've had to do that loads of times. So yeah. I'm just wondering how you handle that. Yeah, in um, in the case of working with families, it's really important that we see the family and community um, as a whole. It is really important to support um, the mother, but also the wider family um, in not drinking during pregnancy. Um, so that doesn't just mean that the mother has to give up alcohol. We really should be supporting the mother and, and um, other people can uh, be proactive and not not drink themselves um, when there is a pregnancy around, just to show support um, and give um, give a bit more wraparound care to the mum. When we are providing um, a diagnosis to families, it is usually done with um, with the team and with the medical practitioner um, present, um, and they are very experienced um, with delivering news to families, and um, it's really important that the team is there to answer questions um, for the families. Yeah, and I mean, there can be stigma associated with the diagnosis of FASD. We hear that commonly from the families that we work with. And that's something that we really, I mean, our, our researchers here, but also many other services and agencies are working to um, destigmatize it because actually it doesn't it doesn't really um, matter what's happened in the past, but we need to look at what we can do moving forward. So what is this young person strong in? What, where do they need support? What can we do for the benefit of the young person and their family moving forward? That's really what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. Focus on the solutions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Courtney. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, that was the question that I was going to ask. Okay. But, um, uh, yeah, it seems very interesting, the, the social impact that this um, – Percent potential diagnosis could cause. Um, and I think you're right. Focusing on, um, the future of the child is definitely something that, that, um, should happen. But one of the questions that I have is because this diagnosis can be quite complicated and, and complex as a condition, do we know about the prevalence of this condition in, in our community? Well, the truth is that in Australia, we don't actually know the prevalence of FASD. So um, there's, a no, there's a couple of things going on here. So we do know that um, prenatal alcohol exposure, so drinking during pregnancy, does occur commonly in Australia. We have a huge drinking culture here. You know, alcohol is quite normal um, across Australia. I think that's no surprise to anyone. Um, but we know that up to 50%, almost one in two pregnancies in Australia um, have prenatal alcohol exposure occurring. So we, we know that PAE, prenatal alcohol exposure, that is an issue that we really do need to work on preventing. Um, and there is a lot of work happening already here at Telephone Kids in that prevention space as well. But when we look at the prevalence of FASD, um, we, we don't know how common it is in our mainstream population. There have been some smaller prevalence studies done in particular communities. Um, so, for example, the Fitzroy Valley um, in northern Western Australia, um, they the community actually called for this work to be done themselves. They really wanted, it was driven by the community, they wanted to know how many of their children and young people were affected by FASD and they found a prevalence of up to 19% um, of their young people um, who, who were in, in primary school age. 
But across the country, we've had some other indications, but really we don't have a good enough study to understand the prevalence. There's been quite a bit of work done in Canada and North America. Um, some of those studies, a recent one found across a really large group of school-aged children that up to 5% um, of young people in mainstream schooling schools were had a diagnosis of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So it is very much an issue that we... Um, we do want to understand how many young people are affected. But again, at the end of the day, it does, it, we really should be focusing on what we can do for these young people. And because it is a spectrum and um, two young people with the same diagnosis might have completely different needs, it is important that um, whatever diagnosis or assessment process happens feeds into that young person's future planning and their circle of care. And everyone can understand um, what this young person needs moving forward. Yeah. And I, I think uh, the work you guys are doing is just scratched the surface, really, in, with you know up until now, um, and it's really exciting that you've got ongoing work going in this area because clearly you've uncovered something that needs a lot more investigating and developing, and um, you know the strategies obviously need to be informed and whatnot. So I'm very excited to see what what your research group does next in this area. Thank you. I think so are we. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just just quickly, yeah, it's going to be super exciting what um, research you guys find out. I did not realise how many people in Australia actually drank while pregnant. I, that's that's crazy to me. But I think the really good point out of that is, you know, if you do accidentally drink or, or if that's something that you weren't aware of um, and then you, you have a child with FASD, um, uh, there's so many opportunities where, where that doesn't happen as well. Like if 50% of pregnant people are drinking and there's not a huge prevalence, then it, it, to me it seems like there might also be something else going on or, yeah. um, yeah. Yes. So it's not necessarily the mum's fault, I guess. Oh, no, not at all. There are lots of, so that's, that's a great point. There are lots of reasons yeah. why um, prenatal alcohol exposure occurs and it's really important for us to look at the big picture. So that might be occurring because there's an addiction. Um, people might be in challenging situations where they are forced or coerced to drink. Um, it might be a coping mechanism. There, there can be a number of things happening for women um, and it's definitely not this, all of FASD and all of this discussion about prenatal alcohol exposure is not about blame. Um, we really are looking at the solutions. But when I talk about that one in two um, pregnancies that are exposed to alcohol in Australia, a lot of that does occur before um, the woman knows that she's pregnant. And so that's why it's also, not all of it, there's still a significant amount that, that's occurring afterwards. Um, but it's really important for us when we're talking about planning pregnancies to also inform women about healthy pregnancies right from the beginning. Um, so before, before the woman is pregnant to really have that conversation. Um, and there is also new research coming out that shows, you know, if you can hold off on alcohol during that planning period, there are better outcomes for um, the child as well. So yes, definitely, definitely yeah. an important part <laughs> of the discussion. Um, Absolutely, yeah. And we, so the prevention part and then the solution and, and getting yeah. those two together in the community is really the focus of, of um, this condition, I yeah. guess. And I should say that some of our colleagues here at Telethon Kids have done a lot of work with health professionals. Um, so we're aware that while there are many health professionals who do know the right um, messages to give pregnant women about prenatal alcohol exposure, it isn't... Um, 
standard in the messages that are being put out. So that so we've done a lot of work with different health professionals like obstetricians, midwives, GPs, paediatricians, um, and there is still a lack of knowledge around those professionals about the messages that should be put out there. So it's really important that um, we share with those health professionals who are kind of the first point of call for pregnant women um, that we, that everybody knows that there is no known safe amount of alcohol to drink um, during pregnancy. So this safest option is to just not drink during mm-hmm. planning pregnancy and pregnancy um, and also um, potentially on to breastfeeding as well. Yeah, sounds similar to the messages about tobacco. There's no safe amount of smoking tobacco either that anyone's discovered. So, yeah, it's kind yeah. of interesting. Yeah. Um, now, Courtney, did you have anything further on, on the actual disorder itself before we move on to some of the great research these guys have been doing? I, I think that's all I've got at this point. Um, I feel like I understand a little bit more about the condition, which is great. That's good. Excellent. Great, yeah. great job explaining, guys. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, yeah, we've kind of alluded to the work you guys have been involved with up until now and that I believe is ongoing, uh, and you're both in the different stages of PhDs uh, involving work from that project. Do you want to give us a bit of background on, on where that project is located and how it came about and why, why it's been happening? Yes. So um, just before I dive into that, I'm just going to link it up with some of those discussions we've had about FASD. So all of those um, difficulties that Natalie explained earlier, the different areas of neurodevelopment that these young people can experience problems with, they can often lead to what we call secondary difficulties. And those secondary difficulties are things like early disengagement from school, um, mental health issues, uh, substance misuse, Um, unemployment, homelessness, and then becoming engaged with the justice system. So they they come about because of those young person's primary difficulties with their day-to-day function. Um, So it's obviously that last one there about being involved in the justice system that we are both particularly um, interested in. And there was some research done overseas, so in um, Canada and North America, that was looking at the prevalence of FASD amongst young people involved in the justice system. And um, there was a few different studies, but the highest amount that was previously found was that 23% of young people in juvenile detention had a diagnosis of FASD. Um, But prior to the work that we've been doing, there was no understanding of what the prevalence of FASD here was in our youth justice system. And that's how the Banksy Hill study, the Telephone Kids Banksy Hill study, came about. So our primary objective was to establish the first Australian prevalence of FASD amongst youth in the justice system. Um, We had a couple of other objectives as well. So we wanted to develop a screening tool to um, quickly and easily identify young people with FASD who were entering detention. Um, We also had a qualitative case study that looked at the experiences of young people and their families and um, their circle of care who were involved in the study and how that diagnosis and assessment process um, either helped them or was difficult for them. And then the fourth was um, the focus of my research, and I'll I'll tell you more about it uh, later, but it's about the workforce development of justice professionals and upskilling them in how to um, manage and engage with young people not just with FASD, but a range of different neurodevelopmental impairments as well. Okay. And so this involved you guys going into the prisons and, and engaging with young people and their families, I'm assuming. Yes. Yeah. And, and yeah, do you, do you want to expand on that and just let us know what that process was like and 
Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So um, this project was funded by the National Health and Medical Research Council. Um, we started our discussions quite with the Department of Justice in WA quite a while ago, um, and we were absolutely thrilled that they gave us this access. So this is the access that we've had to Banksy Hill Detention Centre was unprecedented. Um, and we've had a great working relationship with the Department of Justice and also the Department of Communities here in WA. Um, we had a whole team of researchers and clinical staff based within Banksy Hill Detention Centre. Now, just for those who don't know what Banksy Hill is, obviously I know, Craig, you're well aware, um, but Banksy Hill is the only youth detention centre, so the only secure facility for young offenders under 18 um, here in Western Australia. Um, it has young people who are on remand, who are sentenced um, and who are on arrest as well. Um, and it has males and females within the same, the same centre in separate areas. Um, so we, our team was based there. We had um, the clinical team that assisted in the diagnosis and then a, a range of researchers as well. The first point of call for young people becoming involved in our study was our research officer. So it was her responsibility to recruit young people. And she did this mostly through um, walking around the centre, getting to know staff and the young people, um, building rapport. And it was always the young person's choice if they wanted to participate. So we asked them first, we told them about the study. Um, we had some uh, age appropriate and developmentally appropriate tools that could explain the study um, to them. And most young people were really happy to participate. Um, and after we got their assent, we then had to get written consent from a responsible adult for that young person. So it was also the research officer's role to contact those families, um, which obviously Banksy Hill is based in Perth and we have young people in the centre from all over the state of WA. Um, some people, some young people are really far from their homes and from their families. Um, so it was really challenging to get that written consent, but we were able to get written consent and assent from the young person as well for 113 young people over a two-year period um, when the assessments were conducted. Um, after that process occurred, um, we then collected a range of information from the young person and their families, so about their developmental and schooling history, um, some of their health history, um, some of their family background and context and lots of um, different pieces that, that were available, as well as um, looking at whether prenatal alcohol exposure occurred during um, the pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And was 113 people what you were expecting at the beginning or was, was that more or less? Or... Wait, you go. The original um, study uh, plan did have a higher number. Um, so we were aiming for a higher number uh, of participants. However, working in a detention centre that has remand and sentenced, um, we only approached young people who were sentenced. Um, so this limited our numbers um, that, that we could approach. Um, if we included those on remand, we may have had um, a higher uh, participation rate, but this wasn't possible for our project. Yeah. And the reason I'm asking that question is just is there's a lot of people who will be listening who don't know much about prison-based research. Mm -hmm. They probably don't understand how challenging it can be to recruit people in that setting and all the challenges with 
prison operations and you, you get kicked out every so often when there's a, an incident of some sort. <laughs> and so I just wanted to give you guys a chance just to um, demonstrate how difficult it can be to, to get even, a, you know, 50 people to, to participate in a study, let alone when you've got to contact parents and whatnot. You yes. know, it's different if it's adults, but children as well is doubly difficult. Yeah. I, it's, and Sorry, Courtney. And just, just on that, why did you go for um, young people that were sentenced rather than on remand? We needed the young people to be at the centre for enough time to go through the assessment process. Oh, okay. um, so if a young person was on remand, they may have left the centre before they could potentially finish the, the full assessment process. So that was one of the reasons. Um, okay, that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. And uh, was there anything particular about the recruitment and the, you know, going through the assessments and whatever that stuck out as being particularly interesting or challenging? I think all of the above. <laughs> yeah. Um, being part of the clinical team um, certainly had its challenges. Um, as, as you both know, yeah, working in a, in a corrective services setting um, brings uh, lots of different day-to-day um, -day challenges from um, operational needs to um, young people themselves needing a break. Um, and so it was really interesting to work um, with the young people um, and see even their variability in participation. So, yeah, some young people were able to um complete assessments in one session, um, but we also gave um, the opportunity to uh, split the sessions up um, if a young person needed to. And and many did choose to um, split their assessment sessions up so that they could complete it over a number of days. And, and there was no problem with that at all. Um, from a recruitment point of view, um, our research officer Jacinta did a, did a wonderful job um, and, and we must say that Bank Shield Detention Centre staff were very um, open, excuse me, open and welcoming of her walking around the centre and approaching young people. Um, we really didn't have um, too many issues with recruiting young people in that sense. Uh, we were uh, welcomed into the centre very much. Mm. Um, and then once young people were signed up to participate, um, their assessment process to get through all four of us, so the paediatrician, myself as the speech pathologist, our occupational therapist and neuropsychologist. Um, most young people for that process took about two weeks um, and they went through around six to eight hours of assessment um, over that time. Hmm. Interesting. Um, and I had, I had a good question, but I'm just trying to blank. Uh, oh yeah, I was going to say. So you, you've done all this work, and you've you've um, diagnosed or not diagnosed, but identified people. And I guess you have diagnosed them in a, in, a, in a way who who do have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So what's the next step for them? I know you you have your research findings and your data you're collecting. Was there anything that happened after that as far as their care that came about because of the project? Yeah. So for every young person that completed our assessments, um, a quite thorough assessment report was written up and this had um, the results but also their strengths um, and difficulties and strategies that the people working with that young person could use 
um, to help them with their daily activities. So every young person received a report. Um, the report was uh, provided to caregivers and our, again, our research officer um, spent hours going through reports with families and caregivers, explaining um, all of the findings and explaining um, strategies that they could use and also providing um, contact details for agencies that they could um, contact for more support. The young people also had their assessments, um, assessment results provided back to them. And this was done uh, very carefully with members of the clinical team, um, usually the paediatrician um, and the research officer. Um, and this was done in a very simple format. Um, sometimes pictures and drawings were used to explain concepts um, and the way that the brain works, because that, that is quite an abstract um, thing to talk about. Um, the, with the caregiver's permission and the young person's permission, the reports were also provided to um, their circle of care more broadly. So people uh, that are working in the youth detention centre um, so their case officers, their um, psychologists, um, their um, their health, uh, the health team, the medical centre at Bankshire Hill. So many people did receive um, information um, about the participants to help them um, better work with the young person. And we had some really great feedback. Um, I remember getting feedback from one of the teachers at Bankshire Hill who read the report about one of our participants and she, it just clicked, like the teacher just realised what was going on for this young person um, who had struggled in the classroom to listen and understand but was very verbal um, and so the teacher didn't think there was anything wrong with her um, but through reading the report, she could understand that this person had um, difficulties processing information and and learning. So, uh, yeah, we often had really positive feedback about the information that was in the reports, um, really helped people to uh, reframe the behaviours that they were seeing. Mm -hmm. So it's a really interesting area, in, in, and I know that it's one that we still, you know, have it's still very new as far as our knowledge goes and being kind of a permanent uh, disorder so it's not something that's ever going to go away for people i'm interested in how it is managed and how uh, if there is treatment to kind of improve things even though it can't be completely cured or treated um, what are the strategies and, and what is the prognosis for someone who may be sort of mildly to to maybe even moderately affected by it hmm. it's a good question um in fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, there is really limited research about specific programs for individuals with, with FASD. So what's really important is to um, look at the domains, um, so the, the areas of functioning that have been assessed, and to um, respond with interventions and services that target those areas, areas of need. Um, so if a young person, for example, um, if one of the findings was that they had fine motor impairment and that was affecting their ability to um, complete schoolwork, then a strategy might be to work with an occupational therapist um, and to develop their fine motor skills, to develop their handwriting skills, 
Um, so you're looking at practical strategies that map to the um, specific area of need rather than a diagnosis. Um, and as Hayley said, um, two people with the same diagnosis might present very differently. So um, the there is a lot of importance in when we're writing reports to um, highlight the areas of strengths and difficulties so that the services working with that young person um, can really um, direct the intervention where it's needed. Um, do you think that, for example, that, that report that you guys um, wrote for your participants, that, that report really feels like a, a stepping stone for interven interventions and, and helping the um, young person through the condition that they have. Do you, have you thought about doing any like long-term follow-up and seeing whether maybe that report helps the, the young person um, maybe get back into society or um, learn more things about themselves and about um, what they can do in their future? Yeah, that's a great point, Courtney. Um, so one of the chief investigators on our project, um, Dr. Rochelle Watkins, she is looking into that and, and hoping to get some administrative data from some of the agencies that these young people engage with now and also in the future to look at the outcomes um, for these young people. And, and that would really inform us about what has happened um, post receiving the diagnosis. So we look forward to that. Yeah, and um, we keep hearing, um, even though our study finished formally um, a couple of years ago now, we keep hearing um, stories from the workforce, the justice workforce, about how valuable the reports um, are still mm. um, being. Um, they have definitely helped service providers link up young people with, for example, the um, uh, Disability Services and NDIS. Um, and what we're seeing quite commonly is that these reports are informing um, the courts that are working with these children, these young people. And if the young people appear before the courts again, whether it's for breaching um, a current condition that they are on um, or for new charges, the court is better able to understand the needs of the young people and um, and and create or, or provide a sentence or a um, or an outcome that is more beneficial and appropriate for that young person and for the community as well. Mm. And that, that reminds me that I the first time I saw your team present was about three years ago in Fremantle at a psychiatry conference. And I think either just before or just after you guys presented, there was a magistrate who presented who had been over to Canada to learn more. She'd done a fact-finding tour of Canada to learn more about FASD um, so that she could advise her colleagues on how best to take it into consideration when you know issuing orders for people who come before her yeah. in the juvenile justice system. So I think that's a really positive uh, thing. It certainly is. Um, so that magistrate would have been Magistrate Catherine Crawford, um, who did a Churchill Fellowship um, visiting other countries. Um, and her and many of her colleagues at Perth Children's Court are consistently referring young people for assessments um, prior to providing a sentence. So um, that's really positive for us to see that these young people are having their neurodevelopmental needs recognised mm. um, in a, a, you know, early in their engagement. We would ideally like it to be recognised even before these young people have any justice involvement, um, so whether it's through education or through child protection services. Um, we, there are several other intervention points. Um, it would be great if the young people didn't have to get to that justice engagement point. Um, 
but nonetheless, it is it is great to see that happening. Step in the right direction. It, it is, yeah. 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 Did you have anything further, Courtney, before we move on? Uh, no, I think I'm all good. Okay. So that's the nice segue into the, the workforce side of juvenile justice, which mm. I think uh, Hayley's been a real focus of your PhD, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. Um, before I get into that, yeah. <laughs> would you like to hear the main findings of our study? Yes. Why, that... why don't we start there and then you guys can break it down specifically by your your, your unique areas that, you, that you're working. Yeah. Thank you. It just might make sense a little bit more if yeah. we do it that way. So um, after the assessment happened, um, we had of that 113 that we got um, assent and consent for, we were able to complete the full assessment process for 99 young people. And of that 99, we found or we diagnosed 36% with FASD. So if you think back to that 23%, which is the previously, um, the international figure of, about young people in detention that was previously known with FASD, um, we now have the highest amount um, found in the world of FASD amongst a youth justice population, um, which really is quite shameful, I think. Um, but what I think shocked our team of clinicians and researchers much more than the 36% who received a FASD diagnosis was that 89% of the young people we assessed um, were severely impaired in at least one area of neurodevelopmental function. Um, and that was regardless of whether they received a FASD diagnosis or not. So we're talking about nine in 10 young people in detention um, who are sentenced have a severe brain impairment. Um, and there was 65% who were severely impaired in three or more areas and 23% who were severely impaired in five or more areas. So we're really talking about young people here who have brains that are not typically developed, um, but they are based within systems that are expecting them to act in a typically developed way. Just on the, on that, how many of those people were you able to verify that there was um, prenatal or uh, in utero alcohol exposure? For almost all of them, um, we were able to collect prenatal alcohol exposure. I think it's 11 or 13% that we were unknown. Um, actually, I have the figures right here. <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> um, so exposure was unknown for 13%. Um, we were able to confirm prenatal alcohol exposure in 47% of the 99 young people um, and there was no exposure for 39%. Okay, so you could you can say with confidence that 39% didn't have exposure yes. and 47% did? Yes, yeah, okay. that's correct. Okay, okay, excellent. Um, yeah, so what were there any other findings that, that came out of that? Yeah, so... Um, this might be a good segue into your area, Nat, because you were involved in the clinical team. Yeah, so um, I can run through the domains that we assessed as a team um, and provide the main results from each domain. Um, so of the 99 young people that we assessed, um, over 60% um, had impairment in their academic function. 55% uh, in attention, 54% in executive functioning, so that's their ability to plan and understand cause and effect, 
45% um, impaired in language, 38% in memory, 29% in motor skills, and that's fine and gross motor, fine or gross motor, 21% um, in cognition, so their intellectual function, um, and we were unable to assess adaptive function, so the daily living skills um, for all of the young people, simply because it was um, difficult to um, always interview caregivers um, for an extended period of time. So we don't have full data on that domain. Um, but yeah, clearly these young people um, struggle with many day-to-day -day activities. My area was the um, domain of language. So as the speech pathologist in the assessment team, I looked at the young people's ability to communicate. So to process and understand what they hear and what people say to them, um, and also their abilities to express themselves um, and be understood by others. Um, in this project, this information was really important in informing potential diagnoses, uh, such as language disorder or language disorder associated with FASD. Um, from national and international research, we know that there's a high prevalence of language disorder among justice-involved young people, um, and that's, um, that is independent of uh, research in FASD, but there's also research uh, that tells us that most people with FASD will have language and communication problems. Um, their problems with memory attention and problem solving, they can also affect how well a young person can communicate. Um, so it is really important to be considering um, communication in a, in a FASD assessment. Um, I'd also like to just touch on another important aspect um, we were able to consider whilst talking about language, um, was that each young person's um, first and subsequent languages were um, better understood. So we were able to work with the team at um, Aboriginal Interpreting WA, formerly known as um, Kimberley Interpreting Services, um, and this meant that a young person who might have spoken an Aboriginal language such, a, such as um, Matu or Mirawong, um, they could have interpreters present for their assessment and we could structure the assessment a bit differently using informal assessment methods. Um, and this was extremely valuable um, because there hasn't really ever been uh, formal published um, knowledge of the different languages that young people in the WA Youth Justice System use. So through our Telethon Kids study, we were able to begin to better um, understand this and some of the potential barriers that these young people face when needing to participate in the justice system, which is predominant, predominantly administered in standard Australian English. Um, so we found that um, there were eight different first languages spoken by young people in detention um, at Bankshire Hill, and these were all Australian languages. Um, so standard Australian English was spoken by less than a third of the participants. And this was in a representative sample of, of young people in youth detention. So we know that there's a significant group of young people going through the justice system um, who have a language that is different to that of the justice system. Mm. Um, and regardless of whether they have language disorder or not, just that can um, impact their journey um, through the courts and through detention centre processes.
Yeah, I'll just give you a break for a second. Just make a comment that um, in some of the work I've done, we do an intellectual disability screening and there's a couple of tools that you can use for that. And we have found similar things that an Aboriginal person is much more likely to be found to be at risk of intellectual disability purely for language reasons when that might not be the case that they're actually intellectually disabled. And so obviously it's really interesting to hear that that was one of your findings as well, that when the interpreters were used, they did a lot better. Uh, and, and just how high the prevalence of non-Australian English is in, in that population as well. Just mm. highlights, you know, that that's a real area of need in that population. Yeah, that's true. Um, we weren't able to... Um, I can't really comment on whether um, the young people who spoke other languages were more likely to be diagnosed with intellectual disability. That was not my area of expertise. Um, but it was really great to be able to use interpreters and different methods um, to ensure that their language skills um, were being um, looked at in the best possible way. Mm. Yeah, yep, I'm just going to interrupt here as well. I think that that's a really, really important point because if the young people can't understand the, the justice system that they're going through, then how are they going to learn from it at least, it, it, like even if it is just a, a communication barrier? So um, for me, that really highlights that maybe we should be focusing at, at how we communicate to all of the young people in our system so we can make their lives better. I think that's such a good research area. Yes, you're absolutely right. It is a Fabulous research area. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm really passionate about about the language and communication needs of young people going through the justice system, um, whether they are speaking another language or whether they have a language disorder. The justice system is, um, or, or um, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, the justice system is highly verbal. Every step um, along the way requires... Uh, listening to information, processing information, being able to tell a story and account um, for their behaviours. Um, so recalling events that might have happened a few days before or a few months ago or even a couple of years ago. Um, so the language loading um, of the justice system is, is quite high. If we look at processes um, that happen post-court, even in the detention centre setting, um, a lot of programs are verbally administered. So in the classroom um, and in, for example, behaviour change programs, um, often there are facilitators presenting information to young people uh, verbally. Um, so they're needing to be able to understand what the content of the program is so that they can learn. Um, and if you're a young person who struggles with processing information um, or understanding standard Australian English, um, then you're probably likely to struggle successfully completing programs in youth justice. Hmm. Yeah, and, and I think this ties in with... So we work in the School of Population and Global Health, which is a public health school, and social determinants of health is a big part of what we study and I think things like these um, neuropsychiatric and neuro, uh, forget what, neurodevelopmental um, deficiencies and, and um, disorders that people have really have an impact on their ability socially as well, mm -hmm. you know, with language and education, 
that's going to affect you know the sort of job that they might be able to get on how employable they are later on and that, those things all sort of tie into to people having really poor health outcomes and then often ending up back in the justice system you know yes. so it's re- it really is uh, interesting and, and important to know that stuff at the earliest possible stage so that those um, supports can be put in place yeah to mm. try and prevent it from from getting worse you know yeah yes. and that's why it's so important um, with Haley's work uh, that there is workforce development and ongoing training so that the people working with um, justice involved populations have an awareness and skill set mm. to um, respond appropriately yes very true Natalie mm. um, so, Craig should I, and Courtney, should I tell you a little bit about my PhD research? Yes, that'd be great. Please, sure. please do. Sure. So, um, at the or, or earlier I told you about the four different objectives of this and the fourth one that I mentioned was the workforce development component um, and that was right from the conception of this grant, um, so right from the beginning, it was really critical. Our, our team understood that it was really critical um, to translate these findings back into something that was meaningful and tangible for the youth justice workforce because they are the ones who are with these young people um, in detention 24 hours a day. Um, they are out with them um, in the community as well, the youth justice workforce, when, once they're released. So it's really important that these justice professionals understand the needs of these young people. Um so I originally um, spent a lot of time trying to get my head around how can I translate this, this information back. It's going to be some kind of training package, but I wasn't particularly sure about how I could do that in a way that the workforce would be responsive and um, open to learning from. So I actually started shadowing custodial officers at Banksy Hill. Um, I was granted access again from the Department of Justice, which I'm very grateful for. Um, And so I spent the full 12 hour days that the custodial officers work um, with them out on the floor. And over a period of of almost, I think, seven months or so, I was there um, in all of the different units within the centre. So in both the female and the male um, young people areas um, and in some of the most um, in some of the behaviour management Um, units as well within the centre, um, as well as spending time within the schools and also participating in in programs. Um, So I got to, through that process, I really got to understand how does the context of that youth detention centre, how does it work? What are the barriers and enablers that are faced every day from these young people, but also from the um, custodial officer's perspective? Um, And I think that was really critical for our entire research team, we were all exposed exposed to that, and um, it really did shape our research and our understanding of the system as well, um, and of the needs of of these different groups. Um, I then conducted a formal survey with the youth detention centre workforce, um, where I looked at the knowledge, attitudes, experiences, and practices of custodial officers in relation to FASD, but also a range of other neurodevelopmental impairments as well. Um, And I found that while there was some um, general understanding about these impairments, there really wasn't a lot of in-depth understanding about the best management um, approaches. And um, over 90% of the staff really, that they requested more training. So they said, we really do want more knowledge about FASD and related impairments, and it will help us. 100% said that having that knowledge would help them. Um, And the results of that survey have been published um, if 
you are interested in learning more, I can send that um, on. But I then conducted some interviews, some one-on-one interviews with custodial officers just to really understand more about those barriers and enablers um, to using different management practices within the centre. And then I conducted some um, interviews with pairs of young people to ask them what they think works within the centre, um, what are management practices that they um, prefer staff to use um, and what would be beneficial for us to um, recommend moving forward. So I had all of these different perspectives that were informing this this training package or this workforce development intervention. Um, And I also, it was quite clear once I um, consulted with the custodial staff that they really wanted a form of training that was um, practical and immersive. Um, They really didn't want any online module um, at all, which is a form of training that they get access to quite commonly. Um, So it was really critical that I used a delivery method that was different. Um, This was challenging because I, in my consultations with um, the Department of Justice, they really did want something that was sustainable, like an online module. Um, They weren't keen on having a form of training that relied on the expertise of one facilitator, and that that entirely makes sense because they wanted to use this beyond our, our research study period. So what we ended up developing was a series of videos. Um, There are nine videos that were actually, um, part of them were filmed inside Banksy Hill Detention Centre. The first of the nine is a short film that shows the day in the life of a young person in detention um, who has unrecognised neurodevelopmental impairments. Um, And to create that, we had a whole team of young actors um, go into the centre to to create that little dramatic piece of footage. which was an incredible experience. Uh, the young actors also got to spend some time with young people in detention. Um, obviously, we, were, we are not allowed to film young people um, in the justice system, so that's why the young actors had to be involved. Um, and then the following eight videos cover eight different areas of brain function or neurodevelopment, um, and they look at what um, what behaviours will come through if a young person is struggling in a specific area and then what practical strategies can staff use um, when they're engaging with a young person who they suspect or they have been informed is struggling um, or impaired in that area. So there's a lot of practical information um, and there's lots of visuals. So um, the fact that part of it was filmed in the detention centre, the staff really responded to because it was familiar, it was contextualised, um, they really they really understood what the message of the videos were. So those are delivered in a face-to-face workshop um, with a lot of presentations, group activities, group discussions, um, a lot of peer-to-peer learning as well. Um, Because staff in the justice system very rarely get the chance to sit down and and discuss with each other what's working for them or what's not working. Um, And I delivered that to over, over 100 staff in early 2018. Um, and evaluated it at the same time. And the results of the evaluation are um, due to be published soon, but I can say that it did um, significantly improve knowledge and attitudes regarding FASD um, and also increased staff intent to um, change their practices to use more appropriate management Mm. styles for young people with these impairments. Yep. And uh, just to to butt in, I I can certainly give that first video a five-star review, having seen it a couple of times at different... Uh, conferences and it was re- it's really well professionally made and um, the act the actors are excellent and you know the the production quality is ver- really high 
Thanks, uh, Craig. Yeah. We, we worked with a fantastic company um, who really understood the need to um, create film content that induced empathy from the audience. Mm. I think that's really important to understand that from the young person's perspective. Yeah. And I think the other fascinating thing about your project is that firstly happened to be the topic, but you've actually developed a, a, a package that could be potentially adapted to a range of different topics that, that staff need to be trained on, you know, in... So I think that it could have like a really big impact going forward as well. Yeah, yeah. So FASD was the obviously the original um, focus of our study, but because we found that 89% were severely impaired in at least one area of neurodevelopment, regardless of whether FASD was present or not, um, I think it's really shifted the focus for us to be more about neurodevelopment um, impairments as a uh, um, as a broad in the broader sense and. Um, yeah, not, not just FASD specific. And I think this training, because it really focuses on behaviours um, rather than diagnosis, I think that's critical because these staff are often not informed if a diagnosis has been made. Um, and it's rare that these diagnoses are made as well um, for young people in the justice system. So all that staff have to go on is those behaviours that they're seeing. Um, and that's why we shaped it in that way. Um, and I should just mention that in the videos, there is a range of perspectives. So there are health professionals who appear, um, the health professionals that were involved in the diagnostic assessments. Um, there are custodial officers who appear as well and talk about situations that they've been in where um, they, a young person might have had an impairment and strategies that they found helpful. And then there's also parents and caregivers as well. So it's really great for um, the participants who's who's, who's sat um, through our training intervention to get an understanding from all those different um, perspectives. Mm -hmm. and, and from an end user point of view, who, who will have access or the, the opportunity to access that, that training package? Mm. Um, so I should just say the training package is called Reframe um, and that's because it's about upskilling justice professionals to reframe the behaviours of young people with neurodevelopmental impairments. Um, we now we are now providing that to um, many other staff in the Department of Justice in, in youth justice um, as a paid service, a paid training service. Um, we are also potentially moving into adult corrections as well um, because there has been a lot of interest there. Um, we don't have prevalence figures for these impairments, but we suspect that um, well, we know that a lot of these young people do go from youth justice to our adult justice system, mm -hmm. and it's important that staff in those um, in that area understand these impairments too. Uh, that was something I was wondering. Can adults be diagnosed with FASD as well? Yes, they can. Okay, they can. Um, so, just as a as a different perspective, um, have you thought about um, maybe adapting it for teaching as well? So, in schools, there could be like a uh, PD day for teachers, this might be like a really good tool for that as well. Yeah, Courtney, that's a great point. So um, since we delivered it at Banksia, we have been inundated with requests from, <laughs> um, around the country. So we've had every youth justice agency in Australia interested, which is fantastic. Um, but beyond the justice system, well, we've also had a lot of interest from police, but beyond the justice system, we've had interest from um child protection agencies, community services, um, non-government organisations and the education sector as well. Um, so that's definitely something we're looking into now, how we can adapt this training to meet different workforces' needs um, and scale it up um, as well so that we can 
roll it out over quite some some large workforces. If we look at the workforce of WA Police, who would, who are really interested um, in this kind of training, um, that is, you know, several thousand staff that we're talking about across the <laughs> across um, the state. And at the moment, there's only one facilitator of Reframe, being myself. Um, so there's lots of different avenues that we're looking at, and we'd really love to hear from other people who are interested in partnering on mm-hmm. this work as well. And, we'll, and we'll, we'll include your contact details and uh, literature, etc., in the in the show notes, so people can find that a bit more Great. as well. Thanks, Craig. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess if we so we're sort of drawing towards a close, I think. Um, do you guys have any other comments on any key findings from the programs overall? and potential future directions for, for further research or plans to do further research in this space? We've got lots of plans. We've always got lots of plans. <laughs> <laughs> um, we dream big. <laughs> we, we do. We do. Um, and I think it's really important to dream big in this area um, because these young people dream big and they deserve that. Um, but we have three main uh, priorities, I would say, that, that we're focusing on moving forward. Um, and that we're doing a lot of advocacy work for um, because it's not just for our research focus but also for um, services and government agencies to be aware of. So I think our number one um, priority is advocating for the assessment of all young people um, involved in the justice system Um, and this needs to be a comprehensive assessment of their neurodevelopment um, and that would likely involve or it would involve an, a multidisciplinary team. Um, and ideally, this should, as I said earlier, this should be occurring much earlier, but at the very least at their first contact with mm-hmm. the, the youth justice system. Mm-hmm. Um, we also, our second priority would be to um, continue training staff. So be, like I've just mentioned, beyond the justice sector, but any frontline professional who is engaging with a vulnerable population of young people um, needs to be aware of these neurodevelopmental impairments and needs to have um, different management strategies or skill sets to appropriately um, engage with these young people. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking like child protection is one area where yes. it would cross over. Definitely, yeah. yes. Um, and we've had lots of interest, particularly from residential care facilities um, in child protection across the state and um, nationally as well. And our third priority um it relates to something that Natalie said earlier, which is about these programs, these behaviour change programs and rehabilitation um, programs that these young people are engaged with. And that as they are delivered at the moment, they're likely not um, being uh, understood by the young people because they aren't delivered in a way that has considered the young person's neurodevelopmental needs. Um, so something that we feel strongly about is that um, we would, it would be really important to look at how these are being delivered and what are the what is the actual um, evidence behind these programs, and what is um, and and to evaluate them to see are they actually creating a change for these young people um, and and in their lives, and then hopefully working with these agencies who are delivering them to adapt them to be more appropriate for the young people's neurodevelopmental stage. Interesting. It sounds like you've got your hands full for the next ten years or so. <laughs> But it also sounds like you're doing fabulous work and, and all of this will impact um, how people see this condition and also the people that live with this condition. It will certainly impact their lives. So I think it is fabulous research that you guys are doing. Thank you. Yeah. Nat, is there anything you want to add about future directions? 
that I might have missed. <laughs> um, no, I, yeah, I agree with the um, the main points that Haley has provided. Um, and in in the assessment and training and program delivery, uh, from a language point of view, um, we are really hopeful to see speech pathologists being employed um, by the WA Youth Justice System at some point. Um, there has been discussion about it. We have provided um, input into various um, uh, business cases for speech pathologists. Um, and around the country, country, we are seeing different youth justice systems employ speech pathologists. In Queensland, um, they have multiple speeches in their detention centres. Um, Northern Territory and South Australia have employed uh, speech pathologists in their youth justice system. And just in the last week, the New South Wales um, Frank Baxter Detention Centre have um, advertised for um, speech pathologists. So we are really hopeful that in WA, where we have the evidence for the need for speech mm -hmm. pathologists, that we um, will soon see speech pathologists uh, being embedded. And um, other allied health professionals yeah, too. And certainly, yeah, certainly, and, and um, other allied professionals um, allied health professionals being involved in the justice system to help meet the unmet needs of these young people. Mm. Mm. That's really cool. Excellent. Yeah, well, fingers crossed. And I think it's the, the efforts of you guys as advocates as well as researchers that will kind of contribute to that happening. So keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you. I should just mention that um, a lot of information is available online um, about FASD at fasdhub.org.au, which Natalie mentioned earlier. Um, and so you can find all of the latest information as well as um, family and carer support groups and, and research as well. Um, and our research can be found at alcoholpregnancy.telephonekids.org.au. Okay. And do you guys have any Twitter or uh, other social media handles that people might want to subscribe to or follow? Yes, sure. So uh, on Twitter, you can find me at Hayley M. Passmore. Um, and I'm at Natalie Kippen. Excellent. All right. So, uh, Courtney, do you have anything further before we wrap up? I think the last thing is that all of that information will probably be in the description below for this episode as well. So if you didn't catch it, it will be there um, as a comment. So you can always follow Haley and Natalie on Twitter as well um, just by clicking what's down below. Yeah, we certainly will. Um, well, <laughs> the last thing to do is just to thank Haley and Natalie for your time today. It's been wonderful to hear it has been fantastic. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, hopefully people listening are um, you know, interested in follow up and find out a bit more. Thank, Thank you, you for having us on and um, listening to us talk about our research. Yeah, thanks a lot. Great. Thanks, guys. Great. Thanks. <laughs> joining us for another episode we hope you enjoyed our chat with Haley and natalie from the telethon kids institute as usual you can contact us at health means what via twitter and meaning of health at outlook.com via email and we look forward to speaking with you again soon thank you the meaning of health podcast is produced with the support of the school of population and global health and the education enhancement unit at the university of western australia podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming. Mm -hmm.